Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, my guest is Seth Godin, an entrepreneur, author, and creator of the Akimbo Workshops. And this interview is personal. I'm a graduate of many of those workshops. It was the Alt-MBA and the marketing seminar that helped me forge my identity as a climate activist, and this podcast was actually born and nurtured in the Podcast Fellowship as well as the Podcast Fellowship Pro. More than anything, Seth is a teacher who helps people see the change they want to make in the world and then gives them the tools and encouragement to go out and make that change. Hi, Seth. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to see you. One of the amazing discoveries that I've made over the past year with this podcast is that we have the science and technology right now to solve many of the problems related to climate. It's really a matter of willpower. How might we become more effective by framing climate change as a marketing challenge instead of a technology challenge? Well, technology is a tricky question. Technology means different things to different people. Technology doesn't have to mean computer chips. Technology can mean any tool that uh, is a way that humans can extend themselves forward. There are lots of technologies in our lives, but if we're not careful, we're going to end up thinking we need to build a robot to solve problems. Now, you started your question elegantly by saying that we already have most of the technology we need to solve most of the problem we're facing with atmosphere change. And we also have all the technology we need to solve the uneven distribution of food and healthcare and lots of other problems that are immediate. All of which is a way of saying, you are correct. We have a marketing problem. If marketing is about the stories we tell, how we tell them, how we live them, who we tell them to, and how we understand how humans make decisions and choose priorities. So yeah, this is a marketing problem, just like making sure people have clean water is a marketing problem. And global warming was a horrible choice in branding. What do you think would be better? Well, I wrote about this 11 years ago. My slightly provocative response was we should call it atmosphere cancer. And the reason is because atmosphere is real and scientific and cancer is a chronic degenerative disease. There are no cancer deniers in the world. Cancer is something that we want to address early because it gets worse and harder to address later. To go with it, I would challenge lots of influencers to shave their head because it would be noticed every single time they showed up in the real world. Now, it's easy for me to say, but the point is we are, on one hand, talking about this like a game-ending disaster imminent around the corner, but on the other hand, acting like recycling a bottle is going to solve the problem. And the combination between the two is part of our marketing problem because human beings prefer to deal with little things as opposed to freaking out about big things. Yeah, so existing narratives around climate change do make people feel powerless quite often, including, as you just said, the size of the problem, and also because it feels so far into the future. How can we change the narrative to give people agency so that they both feel responsible and empowered to take action? I'm not an expert on this, but I've been studying it for a long time. And my understanding is this. The most well-meaning human being in the world who cared about this might kill themselves, take themselves out of the carbon chain. The one who doesn't want to do that, who's more rational, would figure out how to consume almost nothing. Insufficient. Because an individual action is unlikely to solve this problem. There are lots of problems in our world where individual actions were insufficient. For example, 
How do you get fresh water to a city so that people can live in the city? Individual action couldn't possibly solve the problem. What you need is a combination of coordinated community action plus the powerful ratchet of capitalism. The powerful ratchet of capitalism has created more surplus, more value, more change than anything in the history of humanity. And that ratchet enables someone who lives in rural India who makes $3 a day to still have a smartphone. And there's no way I could imagine a coordinated government program that would have gotten that smartphone that cheap in that person's hands the way capitalism did. The problem is that capitalism has conflicting priorities, that public markets care only about today and maybe tomorrow, and that the end game of capitalism, which is monopoly, actually undoes the benefits of capitalism. And so those are the two things that we need organizations, culture, governments to deal with, the timing problem and the monopoly problem. So for me, I think the story that needs to be told is simple. We need to give everyone on earth a dividend that is paid maybe in cash based on how much less carbon you use. And if we made that simple choice, the story becomes pretty simple, which is it is in your short-term immediate interest to figure out how to use less carbon and the power of capitalism, that ratchet that never ceases, will kick into overdrive to figure out how you can use less carbon so that it can share some of the money. Now, the problem with that is that the story has been hijacked by people who have read too many Ayn Rand novels, and they don't understand how to deal with the fact that timing is capitalism's Achilles heel, that figuring out how to price timing into the cost of what we buy is urgent, and we have never done it well. So as individuals, we're born into this system that is so much bigger than us, that none of us can really live a pure life where we don't pump CO2 into the atmosphere daily. But still, I like this idea of an imperfect activist. So what does it mean to show up and have the courage to be an imperfect activist? Well, you know, hypocrisy has a bad name, but hypocrisy mostly means that you mean well and that you are not always doing everything you could. It's way better than the alternative which is to be an evil James Bond villain. They're never hypocritical, except they always fail to kill James Bond. But other than that, that's a pure way to live. Say, I'm selfish, I'm short-term, I'm evil, and I'm not a hypocrite. So meaning well should not be the way that we fix this problem. But meaning well is a way to at least decide where our priorities are. Because as you pointed out, anyone who's an activist is imperfect. So the question is, how many buildings do we need to build or airplane flights do we need to go on in order to put in place a carbon dividend around the world? Because the trade-off is terrific. You should definitely do that. I think that's a little different than the question of, is it okay for me to have air conditioning if I care about the future of the world? Because having air conditioning isn't contributing to helping the future of the world. On the other hand, if we are going to require purity from anyone who cares about this issue, many people are going to choose to not care about the issue. Climate has been used as an issue to divide us, especially in America. And it's actually pretty unique to America. And I was listening to your podcast this morning where you talked about Sonder. 
Could you talk a little bit about Sonder as a framework for how we can develop empathy for people who are on the other side so we can enroll them in what needs to become a global mission? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with other side because there isn't another side to this analysis. I do think there are people who disagree with us. And what Sonder says is that everyone has a noise in their head like you have a noise in your head. Everyone has a running narrative. Everyone is dealing with their own tragedy. Everyone is dealing with their own desires. And just like that noise in your head is loud for you, the noise in their head is loud for them. And as soon as you realize it, it makes it much easier to go through the world. Because before that, what we do, and there's new research on this, that we learn how to believe that we have a noise in our head when we're about three or four. Our parents prime us for it. And once you believe you have a noise in your head, you start assuming that everyone else has exactly the same noise you have. And so it makes no sense for them to act the way they're acting unless they're evil. But they're not evil. They just don't know what you know. They don't want what you want. They don't see what you see, and they don't believe what you believe. And if you are not willing to follow that with, and that's okay, then you can't go to where they are to be able to have a conversation. And if you can't go to where they are and you're demanding that they come to where you are, they're not going to come. And so if we want to make change happen, we take a deep breath and we say, what does this person know, want, believe? What do they fear? Oh, now that I know that, how can I help them get what they want? And that's where effective storytelling kicks in. Along the lines of storytelling, I work with a number of climate advocacy groups, and one of them is called Protect Our Winters, or POW, and it was founded by skiers and snowboarders. They've got great branding, great marketing, they're young and they're energetic. I can't say that about most of the other groups that I work with. What could we do to make climate activism more stylish and appealing to a wider audience? I'm not sure climate activism is the essential next step. I think the unified agenda is the next step. That where cultural change seems to have happened in the industrialized world is when the agenda is really clear. And we can name all sorts of movements where the agenda got swallowed by a lot of meetings, where the agenda got swallowed by a let's make sure we get to hear from everybody again, and let's table this, and let's make sure we include this and this and this and this and this. And as soon as you make the agenda less clear, then what you've done is said to the person who means well, no matter what you do, you're going to be wrong. Because no one's going to embrace the whole agenda. And so virtue signaling and agenda uh, and, and activist purity are a real problem when we seek to make change happen. And in this case, like in so many cases, perfect is the enemy of good. And the problem we have is if you're sitting in a room with people who are sure that this is an urgent problem, and some people are saying we need to put everything into carbon sequestration, and some people are saying if we just recycled everything, and some people are saying it'll all work itself out, and some people are saying we need a carbon dividend, well, then you're going to have to spend all your time on that, not recruiting the next cycle of people. And the problem with this, like so many grassroots efforts, is not only is there no one in charge, it's really hard to visualize the path to where there would be someone in charge. And that's why it's so important for people who have given electoral power to show up and say, we're doing it this way. And that is our missed opportunity because 
That is how, for example, we all didn't die from nuclear weapons. We had plenty of nuclear protesters, but not, you know, fewer people protested nuclear weapons than are working right now on the issues of the day. But that's not what fixed it. What fixed it were two dozen people who figured out a story for themselves and the other people around them that it was better to fix it than to be dead. It felt like we were gaining a lot of momentum with 350.org and Greta in the news before COVID. Now, COVID and stay at home has really set us back. But what we've seen is that as economies have slowed down, the environment has had some amazing re regeneration and recovery. Right. The irony. How can we use this as an opportunity to walk away from some of the sunk costs of climate activism to date? And what could the future of climate activism look like? These are tragic times. This is the worst six months most of us have ever lived through. And it is amplified dramatically for the people who aren't personally ill, personally damaged, personally experiencing violence. It is amplified by cable TV, by the internet, by breaking news. It feels to me like it will be followed by a really significant recession and a period of healing. And the problem when you have a significant recession is people start thinking about short term again. And we have to figure out as people who are crafting a story, how to tell the story that it is cheaper to do things that create a resilient environment, not more expensive. And if that's not your story, then you're reserving it for elites who are virtue signaling, and that will not get you to where you want to go. Well, Seth, thank you for giving so many people the tools and the permission, including myself, the tools and permission to go out and make the change that they seek in the world. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. Well, thank you for showing up on the regular. Thank you for leading people. When they write the history 20 years from now, there are people like you who they're going to highlight because it's not easy to show up and it's easy to get distracted by the short term. And we need more voices and we need a better story. So thank you for both of those things. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.